So we are in a series on Mark. We've been in it for a number of months now, and we'll continue through the Gospel of Mark until um, summertime, and then on summertime we'll go through a different series, and then we'll probably start it back up in the fall. But Mark's been writing this book of details about Jesus' life because Mark understands the absolute and vital importance needed to continue the story of Jesus in a way that wouldn't get muddied or blurred through the oral stories being told. I mean, I think of like that game Telephone. Remember that that game that we used to play when we were kids? And you'd whisper a phrase to the person next to you, like, Aristotle and Plato were great philosophers. And that person whispers it to the next, and then to the next one, and then so on and so forth, like in that circle, until the last person in the circle has to say what the phrase was, and it comes back as like, AirPods and dough hold great philosophy. Or something that's like, something like it, but not quite like it, and definitely not what the original story was. So some things just get lost or muddied or embellished, or even simply left out when the stories are only told and never written down. Mark was friends with and traveled with Peter over the years, Simon Peter. Um, I'm guessing at the beginning of of his conversion, Mark just wanted to know about Jesus' death and resurrection and what happened after Jesus connected with the disciples after he rose from the dead. But then Mark probably got curious about what Jesus was like before he was killed and rose again. I mean, Mark's been soaking in the stories, asking Peter to tell him the most important details about what Jesus did in those three years of his ministry. Like, tell me about that time Jesus healed the blind man again, Peter. How many people do you think were there when he fed everyone out of a small amount of food? But I bet Mark turned questions from facts that happened to the small and important details about Jesus' personality. What was his life like, Peter? How do you think he felt when his family didn't believe who he said that he was who he said he was? What I read through this account that Mark wrote down for us isn't just the facts. We can read the emotion peppered throughout the words. We can feel the pain and hope and joy that Jesus felt. Last week, we looked at Mark chapter 3, and something just jumped out at me. On verse 5, it says, Jesus looked around at the Pharisees in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. I mean, that, that, that emotion, Jesus was deeply distressed because of how hard the religious rulers' hearts were to the Father. I mean, God the Father wants all to come to him. And I, and I wonder if Jesus believed that if, if the people only knew Jesus, their hearts would soften to God's kingdom. If the religious upholders and leaders only had an encounter with Jesus, their hearts would click and connect with what God was up to. It would just begin to make sense. I bet Jesus was hopeful for them. And I can see that in this emotion and intention that Mark writes with that we'll get to here in a minute. And I think we get to allow ourselves to connect to the emotions that Jesus had, but we also get to connect to the, the emotions that maybe those first century Christians would have experienced while they were reading this book in their church gatherings together. When I write my sermons, I pray for our church. I pray for you specifically. I pray over the text and I write my sermons for the community, knowing what many of your needs are and hoping what comes out of this sermon will be used to edify and encourage you and challenge you into a deeper relationship with Jesus. 
And what we see in the book of Mark is that Mark also writes this book to a very specific audience of Roman Christians who were beginning to experience the harshness of persecution, the fear of torture and imprisonment, and the reality of potential death because of their faith and belief in Jesus Christ. They were not only losing family members to death in the Colosseums, but some of these Christian disciples were actually losing family members because of their beliefs. Families were divided over estrangements coming from following Jesus as their Messiah and Savior. Sons and daughters were kicked out and removed from the family dinner table. Cousin Luke was whispered about because did you know he became a disciple of Jesus? Did you hear he's following the dead and fake Messiah? In, in a shame-based culture, following this rumored dead and risen Messiah could ostracize you from your family. You could become an orphan of sorts. And I think Mark knew these realities when he wrote this book. He intentionally included the emotion of Jesus, the pain of family rejection, and the discomfort of the religious authorities in the good news announcement of God's kingdom so everyone could see how included they were in God's kingdom. So turn with me to Mark chapter 3. We'll be in verses 7 to 35 this morning. I know it's kind of a big passage, and we'll, we'll read it, and then we'll get into it a little bit. Mark 3, verses 7 to 35. So it says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Edemia, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell anyone about him. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boranges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went out to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons he's driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against its house, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. 
His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up, and then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and he told them, and, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers? He asked. Then he looked around at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother and brother and sister. Amen. <clears throat> I, I think it's important to take a minute and recognize uh, the scribes and the Pharisees here in this passage really throughout the whole gospel book. I mean, they, they, they're mentioned again and again. Mark writes about the, the scribes and the Pharisees. These men were well-educated. They lived in a place of Hebrew cultural and societal privilege. They were highly respected and the kinds of religious leaders that most people desired to learn from. I don't think they were trying to be contemptuous towards Jesus. I, I think they were trying to stay true to God's teachings and law. And oftentimes I look at these religious leaders in, in the Bible and I read about them and, and I see them only as the enemy to overcome in some sort of Jesus cartoon. Like, oh no, here they come. Do, 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 do. But, but these men were, they were God-fearing. The problem was that they were so focused on God's teachings and God's law, they missed God's character. They couldn't see the grace of God's kingdom because their hearts were so focused on obedience and getting it right instead of the loving character of the Father's heart. And because their hearts were hard, they couldn't accept the teaching and character of Christ. And there was a belief back then, and one that still permeates our faith today, um, that causes us to believe we can be born into good standing with God. Like we can be part of God's kingdom simply because our parents' good effort or because our, our grandpa was a pastor or some sort of, I've been a part of this denomination or this church since before I was born. <laughs> I was born in the front pew. <laughs> I mean, during this time of Christ, if you were born a Jew, you were included in, into this long history of God's abundance and God's approval. There was nothing you could do or not do to be a part of God's family. It was just kind of like, built into the structure of who you are and were. But what I see Jesus doing here is Jesus is expanding the notion of family as not something you're necessarily born into, but something you decide on. Family becomes a decision, according to Jesus. Did you know the word Christian only occurs three times in the New Testament, but the word disciple shows up like over 150 times. And I think it's because we associate Christian with so many things, like we're born into it. 
I'm born into a Christian home. This is a Christian nation. That appliance company is a Christian company. Like a person is Christian by association. But Jesus never called people to association. Jesus called people to family. Jesus called disciples who had to say yes or no to follow him where every other identity or family tie or career opportunity or church youth group came second to the decision to follow Jesus in all things. That song that we used to sing, and many of you grew up in the church, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Man, it's a choice every human must decide on. Jesus is calling you beckoning you, inviting you to follow him, to put your faith in him. Will you say yes to Jesus? Will you lay down your life and follow him? Will you allow God's love into your life through Jesus? God's love is amazing and abundant and so present, and God wants you to experience this gift of love and grace. It is a free gift that must be accepted. And if your heart is hard because of your past or present circumstances, or if you believe you aren't worthy of love, or because it's just difficult to admit you need such love, I want to pray with you. I know this church family would want to pray with you and and help love you until you can allow God to love you. But it really comes down to choice. And while I think in this passage of scripture, there's a lot to do with darkness and evil and Satan, I think it has more to do with like this new family God is breathing life into through Jesus Christ. I think Jesus is asking people to make a choice to follow Jesus as fully committed lifelong disciples, not simply floating into the kingdom or believing your parents' faith is enough for you, Jesus is asking you if you want to be his disciple. Will you come and follow Jesus? Will you say yes to being a disciple of Jesus and join this family God has been knitting together? Not one you're born into, but one you choose to step into. Now, I know we're talking about family a bit here, and I want to say something about family. I I believe the family unit has at times become a source of idolatry within the church. A person is measured up by how they run their family. A leader must have a well-behaved and well-managed family. If you're new to a church and you're single, there might be a role for you somewhere, probably in kids ministry, but it's rare to find singles on leadership teams or elder boards and everyone is trying to get you married, which kind of feels like you're not enough in yourself without being attached to another person. (laughs) And if you're married, there's the continual question of when you're going to have kids. Like marriage is the first step, but kids is when you really arrive. And if you don't want kids, man, it's hard to belong. What I see in this teaching that we just read is that family doesn't always look like mom and dad and sister and brother. Family looks pieced together with singles, widows, marrieds, divorced, estranged, stepkids, 
children and elderly all together, serving each other, growing in love and compassion for each other, encouraging each other and challenging one another. Did you know there's 59 one another and each other passages in the New Testament calling Jesus' followers to life together as a kingdom of God family? The kingdom of God, that family, looks like one another. God called Jason and me to adopt, um, to grow our family through adoption before we actually even met each other. <laughs> before we got married, when we met each other, we, we talked about wanting a family and what that would look like as we, you know, once we got married. And we both actually shared how adoption was a calling on each of us, um, which was surprising. I thought it would just be like, hey, I'm sorry, this is what's going on. I hope you're okay with it. But both of us were like, yeah, that's something that God has placed on both of our hearts. And when we were when we were trying to adopt in the beginning, we we shared um, we shared with our family law attorney that we wanted to grow our family from the foster system. And this was actually surprising to him because he had only facilitated private adoptions, um, meaning that a birth mother is pregnant and she is wanting to make an adoption plan for her child, like she knows that. She wants to carry this child all the way full term. And when she gives birth to the child, she knows that she wants this child to be adopted by a loving family. And so she chooses a family to adopt that child. In the foster system, it's different because the birth mother usually doesn't have a choice. Um, There's some sort of complicated situation that makes it so the child can no longer be with their family of origin. And so this private law attorney had only experienced private adoptions, family law attorney, excuse me. Um, and we were on the phone with him and it, and it seemed like it, it was like an act of what he considered prophecy. He said, you know, with each of those children you adopt, you will be severing generational lines of trauma and neglect. You get to help write new generational lines for them. I think this is what the family of God the kingdom family is meant to look like, where Jesus helps write new generational lines for each other through each other. However, I think our attorney was misguided in some ways because our generational lines cannot be fully severed. We bring our upbringings and our families of origin and our generational traumas and joys in our DNA. It's embedded in us. For my kids, their families of origin are people I love and value deeply, even in the midst of the pain that comes with it. I love my family of origin, even in the midst of the pain that comes in my DNA. And I believe this new family Jesus is bringing forth isn't one that rejects families of origin, but helps us name anything toxic we need to let go of and then sets us to create new generational lines that are built on Christ. And when we participate in this new family, we bring ourselves into it with all our junk and issues and weird perspectives on life. We bring our differences of opinions and our theological differences 
And the church can be a challenging place because we're all so different and we're trying to build this new family together. Now, some people think of a family that's meant to look like a tree with many different branches. You know, when you were in elementary school and you had to put together your family tree project and you've got great Aunt Mary over here on this branch and you've got Uncle Gerald on this branch way over here and you've got the weird cousin that no one really wants to write the name down, but they're over there in that corner of that tree branch and we're all connected by the same root and the same trunk. But I think in as a family of adopted kids, like this family here, I know that my family, the, the family that I have grown is a family of adopted kids, but you guys, in the Bible, it calls, it, it, Jesus calls us all adopted kids. Paul writes about that we have been adopted into God's family, that God has chosen us as his adopted kids. So all of us really are a family in this place of adopted kids. But instead of seeing this family as a tree, I like to see us more as an orchard. Fruit trees are okay on their own. Like if you're going for a walk on a trail and you see that random fruit tree growing there, um, it blossoms really pretty. It looks nice. Uh, it's it, And it's, it's like, okay, did somebody plant that there? Or did some bird have some sort of seed and dropped, dropped it there? Who knows how that tree got there? But somehow that tree got there and it's all by itself and it blossoms really pretty. But when you look at the fruit that it bears during the season that it fruits, oftentimes the fruit is small and it's, not very plentiful, and it looks a little bit janky. Fruit trees are okay on their own, but when fruit trees are planted next to each other, they cross-pollinate, and because of that cross-pollination, they produce an abundance of fruit. And this new family that God is putting together, that Jesus has ushered in, this kingdom family, is where we are in orchard that builds each other up in love and good deeds. That cross-pollination, that building of the other, that challenge, those one another verses happens when we are growing together in good soil. So may we be committed to each other through the storms of life and the joys of life. In the midst of our many differences and our weird DNA, May we not be divided over those differences, but instead be united under Christ Jesus for the sake of God's gospel of transforming love. May we be that orchard of adopted kids. And may we know when Jesus says those verses, he's speaking to us. Whoever does God's will is my mother, brother, and sister. Amen.